SQL Down Under is a podcast for professionals working in the SQL Server community. SQL Server is a trademark of Microsoft Corporation. Opinions expressed during the podcast are individual opinions and may not reflect the opinions of SQL Down Under or of Microsoft Corporation. Introducing show number 16 with guest Paul Nielsen. Our guest today is Paul Nielsen. Paul is a hands-on database developer, Microsoft SQL Server MVP, author and trainer, specializing in data architecture and Microsoft SQL Server technologies. His next book, SQL Server 2005 Bible, will be available in early 2006. He just started writing Nordic in Action for Manning Publications. Besides holding several certifications, he was the design subject matter expert for the Microsoft official course, to, uh, the Mock Course 2784, tuning and optimizing queries using Microsoft SQL Server 2005. Paul has been developing data-centric solutions since 1982 and was the enterprise data architect for Compassion International, a SQL Server instructor with Learning Tree, the technical editor for a database magazine, and a U.S. Navy submariner in data systems tech. He serves on the PASS, or Professional Association of SQL Server Board of Directors, and is active in the Colorado area SQL Server user groups. For recreation, Paul enjoys scuba diving, playing guitar, and hiking in the back country of Colorado. Welcome, Paul. Well, thank you so much for having me. This is uh, quite an honor. That's great. Indeed, I'm so pleased to have you on. So, uh, as usual, what I might get you to do first up is just tell us how, how you come to ever be involved with SQL Server in the first place. Uh, good question. Um, sort of like backed into it, I guess. Uh, <laughs> I first started playing with, with computers because uh, in college, you, the only way to get time on a computer was to take a programming course. And I had no intention of getting into computers, but I wanted to play this deck trek thing back on the mm. PDP-11. So took a few programming courses and loved it. And that's how I got into computers. So sort of by accident. And then over my consulting time, uh, I had a tendency to to work on database-centric uh, applications uh, in development. I guess I really got into SQL Server heavy when I was working with a team of, of three other guys, and uh, or three guys, and it was Gary, Donnie, and myself, and they were both wizards at Visual Basic back in the days when it was all Visual Basic stuff. And so, yeah. uh, it, you know, rather than switching back and forth between SQL and and Visual Basic, I said, you guys just take the Visual Basic stuff. I want to get deep into SQL. And I love mm. data modeling, so that's how that's how I got into SQL Server. Excellent. So that's great. So, And maybe then we'll start one of the uh, pri- primary things of interest in this particular session was that we're going to talk about object relational mapping and how that fits with databases and so on. Um, it's, it's always been a great uh, divide in recent years where... Uh, trying to work out how much we need to do relationally or to shred our data into a relational database. Alternately, 
the object purist would almost see the database just as a an object persistence layer where the the whole thing could be done with one table called object. So that's kind of the the two ends of the view. So what are your thoughts on on the current issues? Well, I agree with you. There is a um, both a technical and a cultural uh, object relational impedance mismatch. Uh, to use the the 50-cent words there. I think technically, Mm. uh, objects and relationship databases uh, don't match up very well. And I think it's it's, um, aggravated by the fact that culturally, the object world and the relational world, we really don't respect each other or listen to each other very well. (laughs) So so I think that that even makes it harder to find a solution. Uh, I, I got into it because I... In my consulting career, most of the projects I've worked on were databases that were failing, uh, not being able to go into production because of, of whatever reason. And so I, I tended to do a lot of turnaround projects. And a company hired me to do a turnaround on an object relational database that they had tried to write in SQL 6.5. And I tried my best, mm-hmm. and I, I gave up and went back to doing it relationally. Yeah. Um, years, years later, I was playing around with this idea of let's let's take the database and and do data as story. So uh, let's go ahead and just record that uh, Greg interviewed Paul on the phone on Skype. Um, yeah. You know, Paul married Edie uh, at the church. That kind of thing. And let's take it and and record all of these stories, these sentences as down verb object predicate. That was pretty cool to play around with. Then I realized, well, maybe we can generalize, and here's some nouns, both the predicate, the object, and the subject were all nouns. So let's fold that together and make it a noun verb, and you can bounce back and forth and do lots of cool things with that kind of pattern. Then I realized that the nouns and the verbs had very similar type lookups and things like that to the patterns. Let's fold it together and just have word associated to word. And that, that, then the light bulb went off and I said, hey, this is looking an awful lot like what we tried to do years back in SQL 6.5 doing the object database. I wonder mm-hmm. if I can do that better now. Uh, and I just played with it and played with it and you know, solved some of the problems of inheritance and, and polymorphism and things like that. And I think that now that Actually, I've one one quick point. Uh, just yeah. just playing uh-huh. the, uh, the the buzzword police here. Um, a, a number of people working with SQL Server may not be familiar with polymorphism or inheritance. So maybe if you just want to define those. Sure. Um, inheritance is the idea um, that if you have a class uh, and then you have subclasses under that, the subclass will inherit the properties of the superclass, unless there's abstract or private properties. There's always exceptions. Um, so if you have an animal class, and the animal class has an attribute of, of date of birth, then the mammal class underneath it would inherit that date of birth uh, attribute or property. Um, polymorphism, when you're talking about the data world, uh, instead of flowing down, it sort of flows up. Um, most object programmers will think of polymorphism as you take a method and then in a subclass, you change how that method actually functions. For example, if you had a class called vehicle, and it had a method called accelerate, then the motorcycle implementation of accelerate would be different than, say, a cruise ship. 
both of which could be vehicles or subclasses under the vehicles, both of those methods would be different. When you're talking about taking data or entity classes and persisting them, then polymorphism takes on a slightly different twist. The verb or the method of select takes on the meaning of if we select um, all animals, all humans, we'll get, we'll get all humans. If we select yeah. all mammals, we will also get all the humans because a human is a mammal. If you select all animals, you get everything mm-hmm. in the animal kingdom. So it basically means when you select, you include the objects of the class beneath it. So yeah. objects sort of flow up the class. That's polymorphism in the object mm-hmm. world. And what what do you think, uh, given the fact that you, uh, you had difficulty in the SQL Server 6.5 days of doing that, and you've got clearer ideas now of doing that, is it that the ideas have become clearer or the product is enabling you in some way that it wasn't then? I think it's both. I think that over time you think about the problems in a different way and in different angles. So... I think that that is an aspect of it, you know, just the time and the experience. But the real key that unlocked it, sort of the uh, the Da Vinci's code of of, of the OR world, so to speak, would yeah. be the would be user defined functions. Um, it's having a table valued user defined function uh, that allows you to easily navigate up and down the, the hierarchy tree uh, and set within the code within the facade in T-SQL, that's what made it all elegant and simple in mm-hmm. SQL 2000. So I think part of the reason why, you know, to back up a second, the object relational mm-hmm. database attempts made in the late 90s that were usually declared dead or a failure, and people are sort of, you know, saying, object relational, I thought we, we tried that and gave up a few years back. Yeah. <laughs> and I think that... Uh, what's happened is that the relational database platforms have matured. SQL Server is matured enough. The T-SQL is matured enough that now we can go in the relational engine and design and model the object world. So, now, I think that's how we got to From most implementations and issues I've seen over the last couple of years, the Probably the, the number one issue is performance. Um, it, it's not that there isn't some way to model these things because, I mean, eventually there, there's always some way to, to model it, um, given the fact the modeling isn't often that precise. So people tend to get, uh, I suppose, looser and looser models, allowing for the fact that they're, they're dealing with you know, ob- objects that are you know, differently shaped, I suppose, to things in a relational world. But the probably the big concern I've seen is I've seen a number of projects where uh, they, they've done sort of prototyping and they've been really, really happy with what's achieved. But then as soon as they try and do any sort of load testing and stress testing, um, they've just had really significant performance problems. And um, I, I suppose, again, when I talk to the object purists, they, they argue that you know performance is almost like some sort of uh, implementation detail. But uh, the, the reality is you can't ignore yeah. it. So... Um, do, do you still feel that you know we're in a position to get sort of reasonable levels of performance? Um, I believe so, um, because it's SQL Server. So if you think in terms of being a database architect or a SQL Server developer, uh, I think you can manipulate it within SQL Server so you get good performance. Um, I know that's that's sort of talking around the issue. 
specifically mm. for the object table, which stores all the objects, it's not a very wide table. The association table is very narrow. There's a lot of opportunities there to tune and to build covering indexes, things like that. Um, yeah. So, uh, in one of my iterations, I was using uh, GUID or a GUID, depending upon which side of the ocean you're from. Yes. Uh, and you know, I had terrible performance. And that was one of the things I, I was finding in one of my iterations of this. I think that was like iteration 16 or 17. Um, mm. I'm on iteration 20 right now. And, and so I went into it and I just spent, um, I made up about a dozen connections just sitting there and, and, and pumping objects into this system. And, and, and tuned the indexes and, and found some of the bottlenecks in the performance uh, in the in the functions, the procedures, uh, and got it so that uh, my transactions per second went from about 300 up to about 3,500. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, it's it's SQL Server, so you know it, you can you can tune it. It's great. Yeah, oh, I'm looking. You know, the one of the arguments I keep hearing in that regard is the 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 object guys argue that you know in time it'll be less and less of an issue so that's uh in fact i saw one a little while ago said look you know like i mean if you think back we used to write programs where we we would worry about controlling the paging of memory in and out of yeah in a, you know that was being used by programs and so on and they're saying look we don't worry right. about any of that anymore so the, the, the argument is that you know the there's kind of a, a purity in what they're trying to do and you know they're just sort of hoping i think that the performance will catch up but i uh the the r- reality in many many situations I, I see that you you still need substantial tuning and things which are, are not part of the model to get it to to work reasonably yeah well i would say I understand the purist point of view, but I'm not a purist. I, I try yeah. to build things so that they're very practical and they have to work. Um, a logical data model has never held any data or done anybody any good except be a starting place to build a physical data model. That's yeah. sort of my view on it. <laughs> so. Yeah, I must admit, I, I see that uh, all the time. I, you know, I suppose, I mean, a simple example, if I, if I had uh, something like a, some sort of stock table and in that there was a you know quantity that was there at the last stock take or something and and we want to like clear all the values i mean the difference between rehydrating all of the objects and changing the value in the object and pushing it back down compared to just saying to the database you know go into that table and you know zot the value in that column for every row right. i mean it's just complete chalk and cheese so well, I think that's part of the, the, the benefit of just saying this is a relational database, which is modeled in a in a somewhat relational manner, but you can pull data out in a way that you have inheritance and polymorphism and complex collections and things like that. So mm. you can still query it. You can still just do your updates. You can still, you know, DTS and get right to it. The uh, facade creates sort procedures and views and functions to get to the data and search the data. So you have an abstraction layer. So it really isn't you know, taking objects and just um, hibernating them into the database um, or mm. or taking .NET objects and storing those in the database. You know, the, the table structures look very easy to play with relationally. Um, mm. I guess the place where I, I really deviate from a norm is the way I do associations with one long list. And that you sort of have to see some diagrams to play with. Um, yeah. So in some ways that... I'm not going to say that the OR model, or what we're calling the new object relational database model, or Nordic, 
is is useful for every problem. There's some problems where uh, relational database straight would be be perfectly fine. It would be faster and easier and better. Um, yeah. The 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 object model is good when you have lots of inheritance that you can take advantage of, and you can then model associations with the superclasses. So and then the subclasses can all take advantage of that. Um, mm. Did you ever get a chance to try any of the object databases or object relations, you know, straight out ones that are built to be object databases? I must admit I've never spent any great amount of time with any of them. So, um, I've, I've done some reading about them and done some mm. demos, but I really haven't had a lot of production hands-on with some of the object databases now. Um, yeah, I just sort of wonder if really down the track we... <laughs> yeah, I'm just sort of wondering if down the track, you know, I mean... Would it would it be a good thing to add some sort of table inheritance into into SQL Server, for example? Do you think? Um, I think that regardless of how it gets worked in, whether it's a design like what I have or whether it's a design that's built into the SQL Server engine, um, mm. Inheritance allows it to do things as a data modeler that within the relational data modeling you just can't do. Uh, yeah. Or if you do it, you're really pushing the super type subtype model quite a bit uh, mm. and then sort of forcing it. Uh, so uh, it, you really end up designing things completely different than just the relational yeah. you know, ER diagrams. Yeah, I've often seen it taken to, to to way too far a degree too. I often see you know modeling examples where people have just uh, endlessly spent you know an, an amazing amount of time doing modeling, and they've ended up with something that in the end might be pure, but it's unbelievably complex as well. Um, I think as soon as you start getting a whole lot of very deep hierarchies. Uh, it can really start to get hard to follow what's going on sometimes. Right. I agree that with what you're saying. And mm. some of the models I've done where you can say, you know, here's a person who the association would be then attends an event, and then a person and event are both abstract classes. Under event, you start building, you know, concerts, sales meeting, um different things like that, and then under person you have uh, employees and contacts and, and customers and major customers, and because you just can then associate the top level of the classes, it, it's really very fluid and very cool. Mm. That's I suppose it sh- should that. actually define abstract class, too. I've got to keep on the, the lookout okay. for developer buzzwords. Yeah. <laughs> yes, yes. Well, an abstract class is one that is there only as a template for the subclasses beneath it. So, for example, going back to the animal again, uh, you can define an animal class and then under it have a mammal class, a bird class, an insect class, and you can have uh, objects to the, to the mammal, bird, and insect classes. An animal then is only a template class um, to provide attributes for each one of the... Yeah. Yeah, I think they usually describe the it as say has, has no implementation. And, and roll them all up very nicely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Yeah, I think they usually describe it as has no implementation. Yes. Yeah. No, that's good. Yeah, I sort of wonder. Um, the the other area that I'm wondering if we're going to get the sort of boundaries pushed quite a bit 
is uh, probably even in T-SQL itself. I'm sort of wondering, uh, for example, the, the idea that we can now build CLR-type objects and so on, the what's kind of interesting though um you know would it would it be desirable in t-sql for example to be able to build a stored proc that that took animal and be able to pass cat type to it um maybe uh i still am enough of a relational guy that i want to be able to see the data and query it and do join mm. so that's why i've been trying to say within the relational world how can I just model some of these cool OO concepts? Uh, and mm. I designed all this and built it all in SQL 2000 before 2005 was stable. So yeah, no good. Yeah. So uh, we should then really start talking specifics uh, in terms of now Nordic is the current name, is it uh, for the? We think so. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's it. Uh, for the um, listeners, yeah, we had a little discussion over the last couple of weeks as to uh, uh, what what would be good names for the uh, the framework. But uh, so Nordic at the moment sounds like the name. So in general, so maybe tell us what you're trying to achieve with that and and where you're heading with it. Uh, good question. Um, all I'm really trying to say is here's an interesting model that I've been playing with and mm-hmm. throw it out to the community if, and see if somebody could spark some more development or somebody else can use it and do something cool. Um, I don't think it's going to overthrow the relational world. Um, I'm trying to culturally bridge something, you know, between the, the cultural problems between the object world and the relational world. Um, I definitely do not want to go out there and start a software company and launch it as a product. So although open source is a... Uh, a strange word in the Microsoft community. Uh, it's not completely open source, but you know you can go download it now from my website and download the PowerPoint slides. And um, there's going to be an article in the Microsoft Architecture Journal in the next issue. Um, yep. I'll be putting more white papers and that kind of stuff up there about it. And the website address? Oh, SQLServerBible.com. SQLServerBible.com. That's great. And so, in essence, what what are the main like pillars or main ideas that are uh, in this? Um, to really boil it down and summarize it, is that what you want? Yeah, pretty much. Okay. I suppose the key elements. Yeah. Okay. Um, the goal is to emulate object orientation inside of a relational database. You get the benefits of the OO world, but you don't have to give up the financial. Um, strength of, of Microsoft providing a database engine that's very scalable and has high performance and lots of you know lots of known DBA uh, techniques and training. Mm-hmm. You don't want to give all that up and move to an object database completely. You want the best of both worlds. Um, so it has, as far as implementation, has classes and subclasses, um, inheritance, polymorphism. Um, there's associations and complex associations and complex collections. And because the association class is primarily just a list, uh, you can go, you can sort of bounce back and forth between the object and the association class. You can ask questions and say things like, um, here is a contact, show me every way our organization has had any touch with this contact. And just by, you know, one generic user-defined function, it'll return back a listing of every association with that, regardless of the class you're associating with. So it'll return back, here's two tech support calls, here's when we called him, here's two orders, here's here's one warranty claim, all that kind of stuff. So for a CRM kind of implementation, this is very cool. 
um, for a straight accounting implementation, it might not be so cool. So mm. just I had fun playing with it, and I want to share it. Good. Now, if maybe just to give us an idea of the table structures uh, you're looking at using. So if you were modeling, let's stick with the uh, cat and animal or something like that, what sort of tables would be there and what sort of entries would be in them? Well, there, there are a set of um, <clears throat> metadata tables that store the class and the attribute and workflow state, which is something else I've added to it, uh, mm-hmm. and the rules, the metadata about the associations. So when you call the facade command uh, create class uh, and give it some information about the class, it stores the data in the class table as well as goes in, it goes in and creates what I'm calling a custom cascading class table that stores those custom attributes under the object table. There are mm-hmm. a few different patterns you could use for that, and I chose the cascading class table as opposed to concrete class tables or sort of the the generic or the valued kind of combination, the diamond-shaped yeah. pattern. In fact, ma- maybe I'll just get you to define those as well. I might get you to just define those as well if you could. Um, the idea of a cascading okay. class table, and yeah, as opposed to a concrete one. Um, yeah, it, it's very obvious if you look at the PowerPoint <laughs> or the, yep. look at the class diagram. Um, but basically, if you're using concrete class tables, then you would have one table that would store the attributes, all the attributes for a class, including the inherited attributes. So you would yeah. create, for using the example we've been talking about, a a mammal table that would have all the attributes from animal and for mammals, and another one for the insect table that would have all the attributes from animal and insect. Whereas a cascading class table set sort of goes vertically, where we have one table for all the animal attributes, another table for all the mammal attributes, another table for all the insect attributes. And if you want to store a new mammal, you'd have a row in the object table, and the animal table and the mammal table. You have to have to join between those. I guess it's a trade-off between. Yeah. Do you want to do joins to to select out all the attributes for the mammal, but make it easy to do polymorphism and select all the animals, or do you want to make it easy to get all the attributes for an animal without doing a join, but you have to jump through hoops to do polymorphism with lots of um, uh, unions where you're where you're faking out columns and things like that. Yeah. So that's why I yeah, in fact, uh, I've, yeah, I've, I've often seen the, the latter version done. In fact, uh, I mentioned on an earlier show, I came across one recently where somebody had effectively the base class and they just built one table for that base class and then they just, for every inherited one, they just kept adding columns. So, I mean, if they had a, um, an animal class, they'd have all of the columns related to an animal, but then... As soon as they added a cat, they would then add the cat columns to the animal table as well. And then if they had a dog, they'd add the dog-specific things to the animal table as well. So eventually you ended up with an animal table that was just unbelievably wide with a whole lot of sort of nullable columns um, right. related to all the possible yeah, child objects. At all. Yeah, and I, I think the thing about that, it, it sort of, yeah, well... Uh, it, it, you, you then have to also have, of course, if you're doing that, you then have to store something in the row as well that says what type of thing it is. So you'd actually have to store something that says, oh, by the way, this is a cat. Um, 
so you'd kind of have to have that there. But I suppose if you follow that to the uh, to the nth degree sort of thing, I mean, uh, in the end, you'd end up back with an object table with just one table because <laughs> uh, even the animal is an instance yes. of some sort of object. Yeah. So. Right. And I do have an object table that has what I'm calling the metadata for, or the common data for every object, which is basically mm-hmm. the object ID, what class is it, uh, what's its workflow state, you know, and a couple common columns for their for searching and stuff. Um, the trick yeah. then is if you go to that table and you have a, a, a row for cat and you want to say select all animals, you get the cat. Um, yeah. So you have to build that kind of polymorphism into it. Otherwise, you don't really have an, an OO implementation. Yeah. Whereas in what what you're suggesting is if you have uh, an insect table that just has the insect properties, by querying on the insect table and joining that to the animal table, we we get the things that we need to do with an insect. And and we'd only yeah. get insects as well. Yeah. That's okay. Mm-hmm. Well, listen, that's probably a good point to just uh, take a break for a few minutes and we'll come back after the break and continue on. Okay, great, and thanks. As well as community resources such as this podcast, SQL Down Under offer mentoring services and both private and public training options. If you need to get your project back on track or if you need to get it off to a good start, why not give us a call? We have also recently introduced a series of online courses available in both Asia-Pacific and US-UK time zones. In particular, the first course that's offered in this series is Query Performance Tuning. You'll find details at www.sqldownunder.com. Welcome back from the break. Uh, First up, Paul, I might just get you to share anything you're willing to about uh, where you live and family and interests. Okay. Uh, I live in Colorado Springs. I've lived here about four years. Um, been widowed for a while. I have two teenagers, and then I just got remarried to a beautiful, wonderful woman named Edie and, uh, last October. And a honeymoon to Hawaii, and I fell in love with Kauai, which almost became the name of, of this Nordic op- relational, uh, object relational database system. Uh, my son is really into downhill biking, and he collects stitches. So, <laughs> sort of a strange thing. Also, notice Paul that you're into scuba diving. Now we had Kim Tripp talking about scuba diving on the show just last uh, last time. Uh, I wish I could scuba dive more, but living in Colorado and traveling, so uh, it is, I think, one of the funnest things in the world to do. And I wish I just had more time to do it, and I lived closer to the ocean, or at least had more vacations to good, good scuba diving sites. But, yeah, I noticed that, too. On Kimberly Trip, I was listening to that and thinking, oh, no, another another uh, diver. So so did you uh, get involved in the scuba diving while you are in doing the Submariner thing? Uh, no, no. just recently I, I got into it just as a, a fun thing to try to do. Um, there's a, a, actually an active community of people here in Colorado who uh, – do a lot of training, you know, distance wing pools and that kind of stuff, and then they take lots of chartered flights, you know, down to the Caribbean or, or, or out to the Pacific. So, but, you know, it's, it's fun to learn new things, and scuba diving is a very techie thing to do. There's lots of, lots, lots, lots of new things to learn, so it's very exciting. And a note, uh, an interest in guitar as well. Yeah, um, when I first went to college, I was a music major and wanted to be a jazz musician until I heard all the others and realized 
I would just end up being a, a, a music teacher in a high school or something and didn't really want to do that. And then I discovered programming. <laughs> so realized I would never be good enough to really make it. But I had fun. I, I've recorded a few MP3s. And I'll, I'll post them on my website or something like that. These days I don't have much time. Actually, it's a topic I've uh, talked to Carl Franklin about a couple of times. So the, uh, I'm quite intrigued by the relationship between people playing music and um, people involved in development or uh, IT type areas. I sort of often wondered what uh, what the relationship is. I do. Music is essentially patterns, whether it's chord patterns or rhythm patterns. And I think if you spend a lot of time immersing yourself in patterns musically, the brain that resonates and enjoys patterns uh, finds those same kind of patterns in software, and, and especially software development. I mean, that's what I love most about data modeling is I'm identifying patterns and create patterns that model. Yeah, and things like uh, .NET Rocks, I've often uh, listened to a lot of Carl's music, and, uh, you know, it's just absolutely stunning stuff. In, fa in fact, uh, I, I certainly recall the one he recorded for his uh, brother's new son, and uh, he had one called the, the Great Crusade. I thought it was just absolutely magic-type uh, type music. So, you know, it's not just ordinary quality. You know, somebody with a, an IT interest with a bit of, bit of a musical interest, I mean, that, that's actually, you know, really first-class-type music. And uh, I must admit that that whole music thing is a different world. I, I spent uh, a lot of time myself in bands in the oh, probably in the late seventies, early eighties sort of uh, time frame, and it was certainly a different world. I mean, you were uh, you know people who had very straight jobs during the day, and then completely alternative uh, <laughs> sort of things uh, when they're out playing in bands. But the uh, in fact, probably the, the, the biggest legacy from that, uh, I think the kids find it really funny that, uh, you know, dad, they've actually got vinyl albums that Dad's on, you know, so... Uh, <laughs> Another aspect that I've read about this, this correlation between musicians and software people is that uh, musicians have to learn how to work together, how to create musical space. You can't have every instrument playing on every beat, uh, and mm. how to sort of get along and collaborate. Uh, and in the software industry, you've got to do that these days. Actually, that's yeah. Again, that's another amazing coincidence. Yeah, between the two things. Yeah, the uh, certainly playing music. Uh, you know, apart from people who do soloist type things somewhere, uh, any sort of band or any sort of uh, that sort of music. I mean, it's a very collaborative thing. It's a very shared thing uh, that's happening. I mean, uh, you certainly w wouldn't be doing it by yourself most of the time. No, that, that's really right. intriguing. So, the um, well, listen. Getting back to um, uh, the object relational things, one of the things that caught my eye, um, which I don't know if you've uh, seen or not, over the last uh, the last week, uh, Pablo Castro and the guys from the ADO.net team posted up uh, a video where they were showing what effectively looks like it'll be the I don't know ADO.net you know, 2.1 or 3 or, you know, whatever whatever the number will be, but, you know, the, the next main version of ADO.net. And what they had done uh, is they'd actually said, look, at, at the, the the data provider level in ADO.net, we've got things like data readers and so on. And what they had provided was a sort of a map provider that sat above that, which had the same sort of interfaces. And so you could talk to the map provider and say, you know, give me a data reader from this map provider. But the idea was that it was a layer above 
the database where they you had then a whole series of mapping tables, which looked a bit scary because they were all like XML configuration tables, which Pablo quickly pointed out to, you know humans wouldn't normally see. Um, but in that, what they had, they were looking at is a, sort of a, a configuration file-based mapping that sat above uh, ADO.net, and uh, you still had very, very similar interfaces into it. And uh, part of the argument they were saying that uh, was sort of desirable is they were saying, you know, well, this would shield application developers from changes in the underlying database and so on. But I must admit, I, I, I was sort of left with the feeling that, you know, I could have almost done the same thing with stored procs and views and things today. And I um, don't know, have you got any sort of feeling or thought on, you know, like having another layer at the application development layer, which is kind of like just a, a whole series of mapping files? Um, well, my view of the world is that I'm the architect. So mm. I, I, would, I would feel... Yeah, I touched this carefully. Mm. I think that the database as a component needs to have encapsulation uh, and a good abstraction layer, just like any other object out there would need to have. Uh, yeah. I think that um, some of these schemes that I'm seeing that are mapping layers, or, or and I don't fully understand link and D-link, but if all it does is build dynamic SQL into the database, uh, it doesn't seem that that's going to be very extensible for the database in the long term. It will be just like the other databases that have lots of dynamic SQL and DTS packages and reports with, with selects right to the tables, and the database becomes brittle, and then yeah. you can't make changes to the, to the schema overall over time. Well, in fact, the, the immediate reaction I had was, was kind of negative, actually. I, I was um, noting that they were saying one of the, the advantages of having this is it would shield the development and applications from changes made by the developer, uh, by the DBA. But I was sort of left with the feeling that, you know, the mapping files would be something that would be managed by somebody apart from the DBA. And so I really didn't like the idea of, you know, if the DBA wants to make changes, they then have to run around and try and work out which mapping files to update, where at least where you've got a, a, an abstraction layer like stored procs and views and things, um, you know... <laughs> As long as, from the database point of view, the uh, the interface remains the same, uh, then then that's the whole point of it: is that the person who's actually making the changes could then ensure that they're okay. Right. And some of the other problems I have with some of the mapping solutions that that are out there is that nobody's talking about taking the ETL packages or the DTS or the IS packages or reporting services queries and putting all of those through the mapping layer as well. Uh, so you have to have some way to have a complete abstraction layer uh, or, or the database isn't going to be extensible. Another aspect of that, on this is that if you think about application code and the trends in application code, they're very short. Uh, ADO.NET 1, ADO.NET 2, um, Link, you know, the previous ADO, uh, all of these different technologies that sit around the database come and go very quickly, it seems like, as far as the long-term length of the data, whereas schemas that are designed often stick around for a couple of decades. So yeah. I think that's another argument for having the abstraction layer part of the database physically, not physically part of some uh, other uh, other 
solution than sitting on another box yeah. or something. I, I think the only, out, out of the whole thing, I want, actually it was interesting that they removed the, uh, the video was gone again later in the week. I, I pointed a few, I watched it and then I pointed a few of our guys to it and said, hey, go and watch this, see what you think. And, and it was gone again, so I'm hoping they'll sort of repost it uh, back mm. up on the channel 9msdn.com uh, site. Uh, sort of soon. I mean, it was kind of interesting to see where they're heading with it. But in effect, the examples they had were ones where they were saying, "Look, you know, if we again have a you know a contact or a, uh, something like that under the covers, but we want to expose employees or whatever, then this was sort of shielding the app from it." But it just absolutely struck me as something that you know there were already good database artifacts that would do exactly what they were trying to do. The only thing I could see that was um, seemed a little more interesting was the idea that then it could be across multiple database servers and types of servers. So maybe it was a bit of a shield from that sort of thing. But, yeah, no, it's certainly intriguing. Um, at least with the ADO.net, well, though, I, I do like the fact that, you know, they've kept it compatible over the versions. That's been good. Yeah, that's true. I think it's human nature to, to try to solve a problem with the tools and the skills that we're most comfortable with. Yeah. So as we have this object relational impedance mismatch, as a database person, I'm going to try to solve it within the database, and the .NET folks are going to try to solve it using .NET. Mm. So. Yeah, no, intriguing. No, well, I think, again, if, uh, if, if any of the listeners get a chance to have a look at that, um, up at the channel9.msdn.com site, uh, I'd suggest well worth a look, even just to get an idea what sort of things they're working on. So, And, it, yeah, it was the ADO.net team that was uh, posting that up. Hmm. So okay. what's, yeah, the, what's, the next, yeah, and what's the next step in terms of the framework things you're putting in place? Well, uh, I've got a book contract now to write about it. Uh, mm-hmm. I want to do a couple of white papers. Uh, right now, it's all just in T-SQL, because I love T-SQL. It's the romance yep. language of data, right? The romance. Uh, I saw you mention that somewhere uh, with Chuck or Chuck Boyce or someone the other day. So the romance language of, of data, T-SQL. Yep. The best way to woo data from the database. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, it, 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 we're funny saying that, but, it, but it's true. I like it. Um, yeah. One of the I know there's a rabbit trail, but one of the problems I have with some of the purists is that they they want it to be a relational database and they're frustrated with with SQL uh, with the SQL language. Mm-hmm. I like SQL. I think SQL's really cool. So uh, that that's sort of why I joke around it that way. Um, but as far as with with Nordic, other things I want to do, um, I want to have a series of webcasts or screencasts. To explain all of this and demo it at the T-SQL level. Yeah. Um, uh, so how complete is it? Do... How complete Excuse is it me? at the moment? Um, all the hard stuff is done. I need to do a little more polishing on the the functions to do updates and things like that. Um, and it really needs to have a GUI. So we've designed out a um, class builder, class viewer kind of uh, interface, as well yeah. as an, a generic object browser. Uh, and I have a friend who's really great at .NET who's playing with some of that stuff right now. Um, yeah, I, it, it struck me as the sort of thing that would definitely need some sort of, config, yeah, again, a configuration or admin tool of some type. Yep. Yeah. 
you know, because I've, I've presented this to a number of user groups and conferences, and you really have to understand a lot of concepts and understand T-SQL great to just watch me play with T-SQL code, <laughs> creating all of this <laughs> stuff. So it needs to have something uh, something else to it. Um, the other things that I'm working on, um, I've got a, a information architecture principle that I'm really trying to push to help us be a, a principle-driven um, community. Mm-hmm. Um, and I also have... A, been working with this idea called optimization theory that just in a nutshell says that there's dependencies between different optimization performance techniques. So a good schema makes it easier to write set-based queries. Um, good set-based queries in a good schema makes it easier to do good indexing. If all three of those things are there, then your concurrency problems are going to be solved because instead of people going to the water fountain to fill a bucket, they go to the water fountain just for a sip. And then you can yeah. solve, it makes it easier or enables concurrency solutions. And then all of that lends towards scalability. So breaking down the details of that, it helps to say, you know, this is a way of approaching performance or a framework for, for performance. It's interesting you mention that. One of the... Uh Often when I see discussions on things like normalization, for example, um, concepts like concurrency almost never come into the discussions. Yet, I think anybody you know, who works with it on a daily basis or sort of pragmatic, you know, often issues related to normalization are driven by uh, concurrency-related issues. And I, I just sort of wonder why that... Um, it, it almost never seems to be part of the sort of pure design, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah I've encountered that too. Um, I've encountered database modelers who not only do they are they not concerned about whether or not their designs are easy for set-based queries, they, they don't know how to write queries, and you know they almost cross their arms and say, that's the programmer's problem. You know, my, my job is to make mm-hmm. sure there's no nulls in the database sort of an yeah. extreme purist point of view. But those of us who are pragmatic, who who are, you know, hands-on database developers and data modelers try to solve the problem and create a schema with more goals in mind than just being normalized, you know? Mm. Actually, on the topic of nulls, uh, again, I was reading uh, Joe Selko's uh, new SQL Apprentice blog uh, the other day, I've been reading through a number of those, and he certainly has very strong views in terms of nullability of columns. I'm just sort of wondering, do you tend to use much in the way of nullable columns? Well, you have to deal with optional data someplace, right? Mm. Because your other choice is to say, well, the customer doesn't have a phone number. We don't want you as a customer. We can't put you in. So mm. I think... Uh, to be practical, you need to have some way to at least capture what data you can. So if you accept that there's going to be some optional data, there's only three ways to handle the optional data. One is what I call a null row, which means we take that attribute, put it into another table, and if there's no value there, we don't put a row there. Right? Mm. And you put a one-to-one relationship with it. That causes not only some performance problems, but integrity problems if your developers don't know how to use replicas or and go get all that nullable data. Yeah. So um, option two is to have a regular nullable column, which is a, 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 you know, there's pros and cons to all these. You still then have to be able to handle the null with, with, a, with an is null kind of function or something. And the third way is with mm. a surrogate null. 
Um, so I would much rather capture surrogate the data null in terms of a, a special known value. You're meaning? Yeah, you put in NA, yeah. you put in an empty empty space or something like that. Mm. <clears throat> so uh, a, a, a surrogate null story, by the way, it's funny is. Um, here in the U.S., there was a story, I guess, two, three months ago about a two-year-old girl who was um, summoned to jury duty. And, of course, she can't go. She's only two years old. And if you read the details behind that on Fox News, uh, it turns out that what they do is when the birth date is unknown, they put in 1776 uh, <laughs> as a surrogate null. <laughs> and then somebody did a report and just said everybody who was born before this date you know, show up for jury duty. So, <laughs> you know, if you have a surrogate null, you better, you better, you know, understand it in your reporting too. <laughs> that's that's a great story. I, I love that. Actually, uh, I must have one uh, when we were in the at the past conference here in Dallas last year. I was sitting watch, watching one of the TV shows, and uh, uh, one that had me absolutely chuckling was uh, similar identity type problems and. They were talking about uh, the problems that the airlines uh, have in identifying who somebody is. And they were saying that uh, currently they've had a number of bills being knocked back, obviously, on other ways to get around things. But they were saying at the moment all they have is the name. So uh, they, the, this particular show, they, they had found, I forget it was David something or other, but apparently there's some like really bad guy with that name. And in the show, they apparently... Everybody who turns up at an airport with that name uh, gets gets well and truly searched, and uh, and they'd realised that this was an issue, and they'd gone around the whole country interviewing everybody they could find with that name, and uh, it was just totally fascinating as they were arriving, and people are going, "Is that why?" And they were so uptight, and uh, they, they, you know, even uh, one one lot of parents were saying that you know their seven year old kid every time he turns up to go on a flight. David's the one that gets taken off. <laughs> they said he's, he's getting completely paranoid. <laughs> you know, that, that they had no right. idea why their son keeps getting searched every time he turns up at an airport. Yeah. And uh, they yeah. also had a they had a rabbi David, whatever his name was, and he said he realised what was happening, and he said he he spent six months filling in forms and talking to government departments to get himself off the list. And he said the only difference is now he gets searched every time. <laughs> so. yeah. Yes, identity so I is an there issue. Are advantages. Yeah, so there are advantages <laughs> to a natural key, but then there are disadvantages too, right? Hmm. Well, I think what they were suggesting in the show, they said uh, the populace doesn't particularly sort of trust the government with, you know, all of the details about someone, you know. Uh, I, I think there's still some uh, legacy of McCarthyism or something something around. But uh, what I gather one of the government proposals was that when you sort of booked um, a ticket or something, what they wanted to do was sort of send it out to about 10 or 12 different providers, each of whom would just come back with an opinion as to whether you were probably who you said you were and, you know, where you live and, you know, all those sort of things. And then they just make an estimate based on the the goodness feel of all the, the things they got back from the individual people, but they wouldn't actually have all the details themselves. And it, it sounded overly complicated, but yeah, I, you know, I, I must admit I do sympathise with them. It's really, really hard to do that. But uh, but anyway, now that, that's great actually. With the I hadn't uh, hadn't come across that one, but yeah. So so they've just selected the the poor little kid out for jury duty. That's uh, excellent. Yeah. 
So what sort of things do you, t- is it, so nullable columns in your case, you're pretty much happy with them, but it's pretty much where the data is just unknown at the time? Right, it's dated, it's, it's optional, um, mm. or unknown at the time, or, or sometimes null means it doesn't apply. But yeah. as a business, as an organization, we probably still want to make a decision, do we accept the data that does apply or that this customer does have? Um, mm. And I guess I became a little looser working with nulls when I worked for an organization that worked with third world children where sometimes the data is just simply not available, but yeah. we want to accept what we can. Yeah. No, that's great. Well, listen, that's getting towards uh, time, but uh, what I'd get you to tell uh, just other things in your world that are coming up. Uh, I suppose maybe we start with the uh, past conference and the past board, just any news or, I suppose, things coming up with the upcoming conference. Um, I guess exciting things I'm doing. Well, talking to you is pretty exciting. <laughs> cool. Um, <laughs> Uh, I've, I've been on the PASS board now since the last PASS summit, and that has been a, a, a real eye-opener for me as far as uh, you know, seeing how hard people work in the PASS community and getting to know some of the other PASS board members, and I've, I've thoroughly enjoyed that. Uh, I was in Montreal last week for the PASS board summit, and the Montreal Dev uh, Teach Conference had a fantastic time in Montreal, um, in mm-hmm. Barcelona, um, last February. Yes, in fact, I really enjoyed Barcelona. That was, yeah, I, I did did present once. Oh, that's right, you were in the session. Yes, I did one session. Yeah, I, I loved your session. So good, good, that good. Was, that was excellent. Um, excuse me? Yes, that was really enjoyable. I enjoyed the Barcelona. It was a smaller conference, but, it, yeah, it was great. So, you know, plans are coming into place. Um, my portfolio on the past board is online content, and I expect to have some very exciting uh, news and some announcements at the past summit as far as online content. Um, personally, things that I'm doing, uh, besides working on Nordic, is I've got a workshop that I've been developing called Advanced, Op- Advanced Design and Optimization, which takes this optimization theory and really digs into it and shows you how to design... Um, or how to refactor enough, uh, either one, whether it's new or refactored, how to, how to build a database that really does flow well from a holistic mm-hmm. standpoint down to the individual details and the, and the techniques. Great. So, and so the other one on. was very, very busy. The, uh, and so this, uh, the summit coming up, that's, uh, November, isn't it? Uh, from memory in Seattle? November. Mm-hmm. So I encourage people yes, to get along to uh, that. And in fact, uh, it, oh, the one in Dallas last year was, was a really, really enjoyable summit. And, uh, so I imagine anyone who was there would be very keen to be at the next one. But, uh, those that missed out should try and get along. Yeah, there's some advantages to us being in Seattle because Microsoft, it, almost all the SQL Server team, all the Microsoft people can come over and, and attend. And it's, it's really great. There's so many Microsoft people there. Um, we can't announce yet who's going to be the keynote speaker, but mm. some of the people we're talking and some of the possibilities are going to be extremely exciting. Yeah, um, I noticed Chuck, I Chuck, and Chuck mentioned that the uh, number of uh, submissions for sessions this time was really good and uh, really high quality. Yes, that's what I've heard. Um, Bill, I think Graziano uh, is mm-hmm. the head of the, the, the program aspect of, of PASS, and uh, what I've heard from him is that the 
number of abstracts as well as the quality of abstracts is like twice as what is great as last last year. So uh, I'm so glad I'm not programming this year like I was last year because I must be waiting through <laughs> so much and some tough decisions. But I think this every indication is this is going to be one of the best past summits yet. Mm-hmm. So. And so the other things you got uh, so book wise so um, the new book out at the moment or nearly out. Uh, yeah, SQL Server 2005 Bible. It's 1,418 pages. I'm doing the wow. copy edit proofs uh, right now, and it should be out um, sometime end of July, something like that. And so, which publisher? Uh, with Wiley. So with it's, Wiley. it's the second follow-on book with the SQL 2000 Bible. Something mm-hmm. that Wiley let me do sort of as an experiment is instead of only having figures with captions, I also put an icon in there for a screencast. So I'm using Cam- okay. Camtasia to record just two to five minute little blurbs. I put one up on my website already mm-hmm. just as a test, and I hope to get better at it. But yes, I, I saw that. That was great. Yeah. yeah, I want to put up maybe you know 50 or 70 of these. Here's how to do one little task. Real quick, just yeah. watch watch me do it, you know, or watch me do the code or something. Um, yeah, in fact, uh, it's an area I, I talked to some of the Microsoft um, folk back at the MVP Summit the year before last. Uh, we, a few of us got uh, taken off to a little sort of press session, and there were actually uh, a few of the Microsoft MVP, uh, uh, sorry, of their vice presidents there at the time, Laurie Moore and some. And I remember sort of talking to them and saying, look, yeah, one of the things that surprises me with... Um, bandwidth becoming more and more available when i look at how people learn to use products like word and excel and so on it's invariably they ask somebody else and then they just show them how to do some little thing and uh, i I, right. I said to them at the time I, I don't understand why there isn't already like a huge bank of things that can be searched straight from the product that just say show me how to do this you know that that you know and maybe a, a one minute video comes down and shows you Right. When I worked with the organization that helped third world kids and they had offices, you know, all over the third world, lots, you know, and around the world, the guy there, his name was Kenny, and he was in charge of corporate training. And he spent quite a long time recording, you know, tons and tons of little snippets of how to do things in Excel and how to do things yeah. in Outlook. And that's how he did worldwide training with Camtasia when I saw it. And I thought, this is really, really cool. Yeah, that's exactly so, what it needs to be. And uh, and the thing is, there there are so many of the uh, say the MVP community, in so even the office products, for example, who, who'd be more than happy to be involved in helping build all the little snippets. Well, you don't have to give them to Microsoft; just build them and put them on your site. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> uh, no. uh, yeah, I think bandwidth is often a bit of an issue for other people. <laughs> so. Because, yeah, serving up all the videos might be a little difficult uh, bandwidth-wise for a lot of other people, but, yeah. But, anyway, look, that pretty much brings us to time. So, look, I'll just say thank you very much, Paul, uh, for being on the show this time. And um, at the latest, I uh, hope to catch you at the, the past summit later in the year. Oh, well, thanks so much. It's, it's an honor to to be on, on SQL Down Under and to talk to you. It's uh, good meeting you in Barcelona. It's an honor to be among the list of the, the, the dignitaries or, or, you know, the sequel who's who that you've interviewed. So, uh, <laughs> thank you so much. Thanks, Paul. Okay, bye.